Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, NGOs, and anyone else who may need a conservation detection dog. Today, I have the joy of talking to Jennifer Hartman of Rogue Detection Teams and Kyoko Johnson of Conservation Dogs Hawaii about what to know before hiring a conservation detection dog team. This is part one of two, and in this section, we're broadly focusing on deciding whether or not a conservation detection dog is right for you and your research goals. I'm really excited for this interview, but before we get to it, we're going to talk about our weekly research highlight. This week, we're looking at the paper, Who's a Good Handler? Important Skills and Personality Profiles of Wildlife Detection Dog Handlers, which was published in Animals by Latoya Jamison, Greg Baxter, and Peter Murray. And the goal of this study was to improve the selection and training of conservation detection dog handlers, which may improve field success and working dog welfare. Out of the 16 skills listed in a questionnaire, which you can find online, the four ranked highest by handlers were the ability to read dog body language, ability to trust a dog's indication, strong work ethic, and knowledge of dog behavior. The lowest ranked skills were theoretical background in ecology, strong leadership, and skills in report writing. Some handlers also listed the additional skills of patience and knowledge of their working environment as being important. The authors were surprised to find that handlers ranked ecological knowledge so low, though they admitted that if handlers are working closely with ecologists or land managers, this knowledge may be less important. Each dog handler's personality was scored in five domains of extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness. Collectively, the handlers scored high for agreeableness and low for neuroticism. However, there was a large range of personality profiles, indicating that no one personality is attracted to or best suited for working with wildlife detection dogs. Handler dedication, training, and dog-handler relationship are likely more influential on success than the personality profile. It's important to note that due to the informality of wildlife detection dog community in Australia and the distribution of the questionnaire, it was difficult to determine an appropriate sample size and calculate the response rate. These findings were based on responses from 35 handlers, and the researchers did not evaluate the de detection dog team's performance, so further research would be needed to determine a relationship between the skills working personality so further research would be needed to determine a relationship between the skills and personality domains and the working dog performance. Now let's get to the interview with Jeff Jennifer and Kyoko. Thanks to both of you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, Jennifer, do you want to start out reminding our listeners a little bit about who you are and uh, who you work from for? Yeah, certainly. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with both of you. I am Jennifer Hartman, and I work with Rogue Detection Teams, a conservation detection dog program based in Washington State. Great. Yeah, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. And Kyoko, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Kyoko Johnson, and I am the dog and handler trainer for Conservation Dogs of Hawaii, a nonprofit organization based in Hawaii. Great. So, um, Kyoko, why don't we start with you talking a little bit about um, the importance for the biologist or ecologist team of kind of really having a good idea of what the goals of their study are before they even consider working with a dog team. Sure. Yeah, there are lots of different applications for using dogs. And I think that sometimes the biologist or researcher may not necessarily even know what the best use of the dogs are. Um, but, you know, some examples might be to locate endangered or invasive species that are in very low density. Um, you know, dogs, most people know, are not as useful if the target is in high density because then other methods um, can be easier um, or, you know, more cost effective. So 
a lot of times, you know, biologists will ask for dogs to come in towards the end of a project when the target is in low density. So that's, you know, one potential use. Um, you know, sometimes it's uh, looking for invasive species that are abundant, but um, they just want to locate as many as possible. Um, there's presence and absence determination for construction projects, for example. Um, anyway, there, there's a lot of stuff, and I think that, um, yeah, often the biologists will um, use other methods first, for example, to narrow down a geographical area where it might be likely to find the target, and then they might bring in the dog to um, be a little bit more specific about the location. Um, but yeah, knowing what the goal is definitely is important for uh, us conservation dog trainers and handlers. Otherwise, you know, there's no way to really determine if it's a pot potentially good use um, and to prepare for the project. Yeah, definitely. Jennifer, do you have anything to add on that point? Oh, I think she, uh, Kyoko, wrapped that up really nicely. I, I would agree that frequently we're contacted almost at um, like the last ditch effort. Like <laughs> we've tried everything else, please help. And sometimes it can be a little scary because it's like the Hail Mary, like will dogs work? So there's, there's some pressure there. Um, so in some instances, I might actually suggest consider you know, working with detection teams prior to, <laughs> prior to that, to even obtain some baseline data. Um, and as the methodology grows and maybe becomes more, you know, respected in the scientific methodology field, um, detection dog teams might be able to assist with some of the more abundant species just because um, now it's a, it's a normal tool in the, in the toolbox, so to speak, as opposed to um, an outlying one like it currently is. Yeah, definitely. I think the only time and the reason that I jotted this point down as a first point was I think occasionally um, I get contacted probably due to this podcast by um, a lot of times graduate students or PhD students who have heard the podcast and just heard about detection dogs and are like, oh my gosh, I want to use you for for your their graduate work or, um, or whatever. And I say, okay, great. What do you want to work on? And they say, ah, no yet. It's like, okay, cool. We can, I mean, we can schedule a call to, to brainstorm some ideas or maybe you should go talk to your advisor and kind of come up with a good study question. And then we can come back to talking about whether or not um, this is going to be a good fit. Cause we don't want to waste everyone's time with a bunch of planning calls and then realize that you don't have funding or your advisor doesn't approve or whatever it is for, for a given project. Um, I think again, the only time that this problem has come up on my end has potentially been people who are so excited about the method that they're just trying to figure out a way to use it um, rather than really considering if it's the best use, um, best, best pro program for them. Um, so Jennifer, do you want to talk about, um, you know, what other methods may exist and why it's important for scientists, um, researchers to be thinking about other methods, um, costs, how they may compare what's feasible for their projects? Certainly, yeah. Um, what I like about the detection dog method is that it can be used um, in tandem with other methods. So it can be a standalone or it can um, kind of fold in with other more traditional methods. And these methods, um, especially for considering non-invasive wildlife monitoring, which the detection dog method is, other methods like this include camera trapping. Um, and you can have baited or non-baited 
um, camera traps. Uh, the kind of the what's neat about conservation detection dogs is they're not biased, so they'll find all the different individuals, regardless of sex or if they're you know the more dominant uh, species on a landscape. Whereas camera traps sometimes, uh, especially if you're putting them up on trails like major trails or game game trails or roads. Um, maybe you're capturing the more dominant species in a landscape. So the, having the two work together, we have noticed on some of our projects that in some cases the, the dogs find an individual that um, the cameras didn't find, and then also that the cameras capture individuals that the dogs don't. And I, I just love seeing the two kind of play off of each other and make a study more robust. Um, other non-invasive methods um, are like taking hair snares or track plates. So you can put out different um, things in the forest that will capture other DNA um, imprints and analyze those. We have found in many cases that sometimes those um, aren't as powerful, like with hair snares, you need just a lot of <laughs> hair from that individual to capture the same amount of DNA that you can get from a uh, scat sample. And other projects also use volunteers to collect scat, if we're speaking about a scat uh, project specifically. Um, but again, the, the beauty of the detection dog method is that um, you can get down to species, whereas a volunteer, depending on their ID skills, if you're looking for, say, Sierra Nevada red fox, you might capture a lot of um, coyote or bobcat or other um, species that you're not as interested in. So having both together is really great because you just up your um, sample size. But if you know you want, kind of want to narrow it down um, and not have a bunch of possibly unusable data, detection dogs can really help with that. So those are just a few of the methods. Um, I don't know if anyone had any others to add. Yeah, I'll let Kyoko jump in and then I can wrap us up. Sure, yeah, those were some great um, survey methods that were mentioned by Jennifer. Um, I was thinking of a specific um, project that we started working on with uh, locating seabird burrows in the mountains. And some of the methods that the biologists use include uh, song meters, um, which are placed in various areas and will record you know, the birds' calls to see if they're even flying over that area. Um, and then you know, once they narrow down areas that have the calls, then they might use wildlife cameras to, to you know, visually record um, presence of those birds. Um, there's also a team here or an organization using infrared drones to look for seabird burrows, like, you know, looking for the heat signature. Um, and unfortunately, the infrared, I think it doesn't work in lava terrain because of the heat that's um, retained in the lava. But, you know, a combination of all these different methods, um, along with the dog help, hopefully, you know, helps to really narrow down the location of the burrows. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I hadn't even thought of the fact that infrared wouldn't work as well on lava. Um, yeah, I know I can speak to the black-footed ferret project that I was involved with back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation was just this kind of staggering combination of different non-invasive techniques and some more invasive techniques. So we were working with, there were ferrets that had been bred in captivity and then released to the wild, and several of them had been collared. So we were using those burrows as a way to have confirmable finds for the dogs and also test the dog's efficacy. Um, and then if the dog made an alert that was not confirmed by the GBS, then we would go in and potentially either set up a camera trap 
or get spotlighters involved as well, maybe both, um, to try to confirm the dog's finds. And it was it was really kind of an army of different uh, types of, of survey techniques just to try to figure out how many ferrets there were in a given area. And I know there's a lot of different papers out there kind of comparing the costs of different survey techniques, and it just seems like it's one of those things that no matter how hard we try to quantify it, it's it's really challenging because it's so study dependent. I know a lot of times like the per diem of a conservation dog program is going to be quite high, especially compared to something like a camera trap. Um, but often you can get a lot more data much more quickly. Um, so those are all considerations to take in mind as well. And we'll talk about budgeting more later on. Um, but there's there's a lot to think about as far as whether or not you want to include multiple survey techniques or maybe you need to. Um, costs, differences between all of them, etc. Um, Kyoka, let's come on back to you to talk a little bit about, and this might not be a question that researchers can answer for themselves, but it should be something that they're thinking about maybe as they come to a dog team, is figuring out whether or not the dog team is likely to actually collect sufficient data to meaningfully accomplish those study goals that we already talked about. Um, do you want to bring that home for us? Sure. So, um, you know, of course, it's um, challenging or not possible to guarantee that the dog method will work or have a certain efficiency or efficacy. But um, I think there are some indicators that, you know, would help determine that. Um, if it's a known target type or application, like other groups or biologists have used dogs for that type of um, target or application, um, and, and that was successful, then, you know, that would definitely um, give you more confidence to do it um, in your location. Um, but yeah, doing an initial odor and printing project, if it's a new type of target, for example, um, is a cost-effective way to see, well, can the dog even learn this odor? Um, and then small-scale pilot projects to test more of the field um, application um, is another you know, cost-effective way to determine that without, you know, getting huge, a huge amount of funding to do a, a huge operational project. So, um, yeah, I guess, so the question is, can the dogs collect sufficient data to meaningfully, meaningfully accomplish the study goals? Um, yeah, it's hard to say, but I think that there are a lot of ways to um, kind of get you to that goal. Yeah, definitely. Jennifer, do you have anything to add on on that? Yeah. Um, gosh, Kyoko had me think of two different things, so I hope I remember them both. <laughs> That's why these discussions are so fun. Um, the first one is kind of going back to, you know, how much time or effort, and is is this something you'd want to consider? I know for a lot of projects, especially, of course, because we work in the conservation field, there isn't a lot of funding. And to always have that first and foremost in our minds, we want to make sure that we're not just saying yes to projects to because we want work, rather that we can support the, you know, the method. So sometimes what we suggest, too, is... Um, 
especially more and more folks are wanting to do this on on their own. So we'll suggest to go with like a vetted team from a from a program in operation to kind of do that proof of concept study that a lot of these new species, new projects need to um, gather kind of, uh, what do you call it, uh, confidence in the method. And then once once it's proven, you know, through that pilot work, then you can kind of branch out and think, well, okay, now how can I get involved with this more and, um, you know, do it a bit more myself? Um, so we always suggest trying to go with a team that has experience um, initially just because so often it is it can be the case that um, things might not go the way they're planned, <laughs> as as we all know in field work. And so to kind of limit some of those variables, working with a team that has done the work in the field, even if, even if it hasn't been on that species before, can really help with with future funding. That's a great question about the you know the e- efficiency and effect, uh, efficacy. And one of the wonderful things I heard from a researcher this year, because I, I shared like you know I don't know if we'll be able to find lots and lots of bumblebee nests. Um, so just knowing, having researchers aware that um, it's still going to be time, you know, there's still going to be time um, and effort involved. And the thing that she shared with me was like, we're just so understaffed as it is that for me to put a team out here and search for bumblebee nests um, just takes away from so much of our other work that we need to do. So if there, are, if there's another tool or method out there that I can put in the field to do this work, even if we get, you know, the same amount or the same number, that to me saves, you know, time and effort because, you know, we're, we're not then overstrapped ourselves with trying to do too much. And I, I really appreciated hearing that because finding something as cryptic as a bumblebee nest um, in the wild, uh, you know, you're not going to just come back with 20 in a day like you can with with scats or with, you know, uh, invasive plants that are pretty abundant on a landscape. So just having some of those thoughts in in the back of of your head, if you're a researcher, I, I at least from our point of view, we really appreciated hearing that. Yeah, I love that point. And I love, it kind of reminds me of, I used to build websites for people. Um, and one of the questions I would always ask when I was I was kind of starting that initial consult is, like, what are some of the pain points that you're hoping to solve by updating or creating a new website or building a new website for yourself so that I could really think about, okay, are they really hoping to boost more sales or do they want more contacts from their clients? Do they really want to start a blog? And I think similarly here, thinking about, you know, it sounds like for this bumblebee researcher, a huge part of why they wanted to work with the dog program was to just alleviate some time and stress for their staff and free them up for other things, which is a little bit different from Jennifer, you'd mentioned earlier, working with researchers who, um, and this might still be part of it for this bumblebee researcher as well, but researchers whose primary pain point is that they feel like they've tried everything. They've tried 17 other methods and they're still not getting the results they want. And I think, you know, clearly as a researcher, understanding which problem specifically with your current data collection you're hoping the dogs can solve. Um, And as a dog handler, kind of really then thinking about whether or not you're likely to be able to help solve that problem. Sometimes it's both or all of the above, um, that it's, it's more than one thing that folks are hoping the dogs can help with. And um, so that, I guess, 
what I liked about that is it took a little bit of the pressure off. Like there, it's not going to be a magic trick that they're expecting. We'll go out and all of a sudden like, ta-da, you know, we're just rolling in the bumblebee nests. Rather, it's like um, a bit more realistic, you know, all of these methods are challenging for the species for all of the, the same reasons. And one may not be better than, than the other, but working together with the different methods, we can get to answering these questions. That just kind of reminded yeah. me that, you know, there might be some applications where the dog may not find as many targets as the human, but it's still valuable because uh, perhaps the dog is finding the ones that the humans cannot find. So I think, you know, even if the quantity is less, then it can still be valuable. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That reminds me when, um, again, when I was work with Working Dogs for Conservation, working on this Dyer's Woad project with an invasive plant, you know, really what we were trying to do with the dogs was have the dogs find the little itty bitty baby plants that were just not tall enough for human visual searchers to find. And that also knowing that the main goal of that project was to find as many of those of those plants as possible, it really helped the the team at D Working Dogs for Conservation think carefully about study design. And, you know, we were working incredibly tight transects on that compared to any other project I've worked because we weren't just trying to get an idea of quantity or collect some samples. We were really trying to find every single one of those baby plants. Um, so that kind of comes back again to the goal of the study and how that works together with the dog team and the study design to really meet those goals. So our next our next topic is a really big one. I know there's um, there's going to be a ton to say about this, but um, Kyoko, why don't you start us off with um, the importance of thinking hard about training aids and hotspots before um, considering a dog team for your research? Oh wow, yeah, this is a big topic for sure. Um, having uh, good or reliable training samples is probably one of the most important things for the project. Um, just because if you don't have the right training aids, then you can't train the dogs. And then, I mean, the whole project is dependent on, you know, the dogs knowing the odor. Um, so there are times when the researcher might have some samples um, already prepared. Uh, the quality of that might, you know, be variable. Um, some people might have stuff that's been frozen for 10 years <laughs> uh, with freezer burn and you know that might not be ideal um, some researchers may not have any just because it's uh, very difficult to to get those and so once they start the project they would have to start the process of acquiring those materials um, and hopefully you know there's enough time to do that before the actual deployment um, in which case you know, we, the conservation dog teams, can collaborate with the researchers to let them know, you know, what types of aids might be the most helpful and how to store them and uh, that type of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, we've had situations where there are no training materials available or little to none, and their timeline is really tight. And um, I guess I'll talk about that later when we talk about timelines, but that is definitely... Um, a challenge. And sometimes, you know, you'll have to not work on a project because those training samples are not available um, because it'll affect the success of the project. Yeah, I, I think what's been hard for some of the international projects we've gone on, for example, um, when these species are so rare, there's actually restrictions on sending samples um, to the United States for us to do like pre-project prep. 
And so in some cases, we have to do on-site teaching, um, which is feasible, but it does change the timeline. And just having researchers aware of that is is good. Um, so having the training aids is really beneficial. But if it's if the only thing available, like Kyoko was saying, is freezer burned, you know, materials from ten years ago, um, that's not actually going to really help the dog. You know, you have to think about it from the dog's perspective. What are we asking them? to find us. And if we're not being clear with that, then we're going to get unclear results. They're going to question us in the field. They're going to, you know, look like they may not know what they're doing, but that's, that's because what, you know, the foundation we gave them was unclear. So I, I really like, um, sharing with researchers that having a source odor from the actual location of that species. Um, a few examples for this could be, you know, we've done moose work in Alberta and New York, but they might have different diets. You know, we don't we don't know enough about that um, to really say what's going on in, in that odor profile to be like, oh yeah, we already have moose samples, so we're good to go. It's always good to have um, odors from the actual area in case the diet's a little different. Um, and also from different individuals in that population as well as different sexes. So this might be deep diving, but you know, some dogs generalize versus specify and making sure that we're giving enough of a variety of odors to the dogs initially so that they realize, ah, it's not just this one individual they want or this one diet, but it's all of these different um, individuals, these different sexes, and, and they all have, this is the one thing that they have in common. So now I'm going to go out and find all of that for you. Um, another thing that we like to share is, you know, folks are like, well, let's just use zoo samples. And that's, that can work as an initial one, but most of the time we we prefer not to because the diets are so different. Um, you know what a tiger eats, you know in <laughs> in a zoo in the United States is very different than what uh, we would be expecting to find in the wild when we go to places like Cambodia. Um, so that's always important to share. So to kind of segue to the hot spots, which I think you you brought up a bit, Kayla. Um, sometimes we can fast track the, you know, that odor imprinting if there is a known location where this species exists on the landscape. And that's where going back to one of our previous, um, we were talking about working with collar data, you know, individual animals that are collared on a landscape. If that's recent enough, say within, you know, three months to a year, um, well, a year might be a bit much, but three months to six months, that could be really great uh, to send the detection teams in to search. Um, and in that way, you know, we can, if there's just a bit of odor that we can introduce them to, but then we can go straight to the source in the wild and be like this, they'll be like, ah, I get it. And that's kind of what we had to do with some pangolin surveys uh, in Nepal where we couldn't have samples sent to us. And we actually spent the first several days as humans, you know, it's like the catch 22, trying to find scats in the wild of places where they, they had been seen. And we only had one to work with. Uh, but that one was just magic. So it's not ideal <laughs> by any means, but um, it can definitely work. And in that way, we were able to introduce the dogs. And from there, they were able to find us more. And then it just kind of snowballed. But it definitely 
was um, was scary entering into a project like that, not knowing if we were going to have a sample. So setting the dog teams up with samples prior to deploying is always your best uh, and most optimal option. Yeah, I love your point, Sarah, Jennifer, about how, you know, we've got we've got our optimal situations where, yeah, we're working with fresh samples from the the correct location and then we're able to take the dog to a hot spot and then we're off to the races relatively smoothly but i think it is also a really good point that both of you have mentioned that you know sometimes it's not the ideal setup and sometimes that's okay i know in the past on this uh the show we talked to simone gadbois about signal detection theory and this um has come to mind for me a couple times when thinking about training samples because if you know that you've got a dog who generalizes really well and really easily um, maybe if you've got a couple dogs, you would be able to use that dog to help find some more samples if you don't have enough, like in your pangolin example, Jennifer. Um, and knowing that you might be able to rely on that a little bit to help get more samples for the other dogs could be helpful. Um, not necessarily something you always want to bank on, but it's a possibility. And this also co- brings up, um, I'll try to find these papers to link in the show notes, but I remember reading a while ago, um, a paper, I believe it with, was with Anolis out of Japan. Um, and it was a really interesting paper where at first I thought it was going to be a negative paper. Of, and it was something about spontaneous generalization between species in a conservation dog. And I thought that this was going to be a paper about a problem with spontaneous generalization. And these researchers were actually looking at it as a plus because what they had done was train the dogs on a very, very closely related species. It was the same genus of anole, um, or maybe even a subspecies. And then the dogs had been able to generalize to this ultra rare um, and, uh, species that they were actually looking for. And they, those researchers were looking at that as a success of, oh my gosh, this is great. We can train the dogs on this, and then the dogs can go find that for us. Um, which again is something that <laughs> could be really problematic depending on what you're trying to do with the dog. But if you know your dog's tendencies and you set up your training appropriately, um, that's a possibility. And I know Esther Matthews in our episode with her about um, endangered lagomorphs talked about when she was doing her riverine rabbit project, they were only able to train the dogs on roadkill riverine rabbits. And her dog was able to generalize to the live wild ones from there. Um, so again, potentially knowing how easily your dog generalizes can allow you to to make those suboptimal targets, um, or not targets, um, but when you don't have enough training samples, um, you might be able to make it work depending on your dog. I just wanted to mention um, one other example where um, we worked on an invasive ant project and we had an abundance of the training materials. There, these yellow crazy ants are all over the island of Oahu. And the final project was going to take place on a remote atoll. Um, so we didn't have any problems acquiring the training samples. However, you know, in training, they have to be contained, you know, in a container. Um, and so the, you know, odor is going to act very differently to wild ants that are not going to just be in one small area. You know, they would be spread out in a long line or, you know, an area that's several meters um, wide or something like that. So it was very helpful to have the researchers and biologists here um, help to provide these wild um, areas, hotspots, you know, the, the Hawaii Ant Lab and the biologists and all the entomologists, you know, sent us all the locations that they know of on the island where they're located, you know, in the wild. 
And so we were able to train in those places and see what the dogs look like when, you know, it's a certain density of ant or if it's, you know, spread out um, in a certain area, that type of thing. So that, you know, because it's not the kind of thing where, oh, it's in one spot and then the dog gives a final response. It's all over the place. So mm. it helped us to prepare for the actual deployment where it would be more like, you know, what we might find in the wild here. So. Yeah, that makes sense. And that reminds me, um, you know, some of the difficulties of working with plants where if your um, plants can smell different at different stages in their, their growth cycle. Um, I mean, just like um, potentially a pregnant female um, scat, her scent, her, her scat is going to smell different from, you know, a more dominant male. And um, But I think that's something that can be particularly challenging with plants is throughout the year, or even depending on the weather. I know one of the first projects I shadowed WD4C on was, um, working in Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge with Lespediza. And the first year that I was out there, um, and this was back when I was just shadowing, I don't even know if I'd been officially hired yet. Um, it had been raining for like a week straight. And the experienced handlers that I was shadowing were saying, you know, the dogs are just really seeming to interact with the scent differently because it's almost like if you overwater your tomatoes, um, they just don't quite taste right. Um, and that was kind of at least the theory of what was going on there. I know also when I've trained dogs on, um, plants, it's really important to get them from leaf clippings, even if they're really fresh, um, over to real plants as soon as possible, because those stressed out plants are releasing all sorts of different hormones that are not necessarily analogous to a happy wild plant. Um, Kyoka, or I can't remember who went first last time. I think, I think it's Jennifer's turn. Jennifer, do you want to talk about, um, I know we've touched on this already, but anything more to bring up if, um, if the researchers are aware of any past difficulties that they've run into with this study, um, why it's important to think about those um, and how they may relate to the dog team? We always like having a bit of a, a history breakdown of what researchers have attempted to let us, you know, inform what we're going to attempt. Um, but sometimes the challenges that um, the, you know, the research have, have researchers have faced previously um, may not necessarily um, affect the dog work. Um, I'm trying to think of some real life examples, um, but it's more that that's that wouldn't concern the dog teams as much. But again, I think it goes back to having the baseline data. In most of the cases, a lot of the, the research that we're assisting on, um, there just isn't much known. So in some ways we're going out and we're, we're blowing open the doors to that. Um, I think like, for example, with the Red Fox work uh, that we're doing in California, this, this was done seven years prior to us even, you know, entering and the researcher there um, is just is mind boggling how much she was able to do on her own just by hiking around the Sierra Nevadas and, and picking up samples and learning where these places are that red foxes may or may not be. And so we had seven years <laughs> of, of data and papers to look at to then inform our surveys, which is huge. We don't, we don't usually have that. Um, and in some cases, you know, we're, we're having to lean on our uh, experience and, understanding the ecology of that species to go out and find it, as well as knowing the method. And I can think of some examples. Um, this may not be super pertaining to the question, but, you know, when you think about a study design and you want to systematically collect data in a certain way to show 
you know, this is how many species are here. This is the abundance. Sometimes the best way to go about that is not necessarily running transects with a dog. I think, you know, on wind facilities, and it sounds like the dire load, like that, that's critical. And that sounds like that really helps. But um, for example, Mm -hmm. we did some Martin work in Northern California. And this is, you know, you can get a few on-camera traps, especially if you bait them, but they're they're not necessarily hiking roads or trails. And this, you know, researcher wanted to run straight north, south, and straight east, west transects. And that can be really challenging for a dog team, you know, because you don't have the freedom to to work with the wind. And also you're having to either work through some really dense mm-hmm. areas that Martins don't use versus um, you can see an area that's really nearby that you'd like to go check out. And it's like, oh, I can't, it's not in the study design. And so um, what I would share with researchers is not to limit the detection dog method, you know, really speak with the different handlers and the different teams out there doing the work to find out um, how dogs can assist the, the project, because it may not be something that they've thought about before. And it may not be something that's already been written about in, a, in scientific literature. Um, so those are just some of the challenges that, you know, we face trying to convince folks that, you know, we can assist with project design, knowing the methodology, knowing how it works. Um, so hopefully that touches a bit on the question. Um, I'm really (laughs) looking forward to hearing what you guys say. (laughs) No, I think that was great. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Kyoko, do you have anything to add? Um, not, not a whole lot, but, um, what Jennifer mentioned, um, about, you know, Uh, talking to the conservation dog teams to, you know, see what the options are and not limit themselves. I think that's a great um, point. Um, You know, for example, you know, we talked with somebody who thought that dogs could be the most effective during a certain uh, time of the year because of, you know, the odor availability. And from our experience, you know, we found that the dogs could, detect residual odor months later. Um, so it didn't have to necessarily be during that season. And so I think, you know, with a biologist having the biological information and the dogs, dog trainers knowing uh, what the dog's abilities are for them to, you know, talk and figure out what the best solutions are uh, will yield um, creative solutions, I think. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so I know our, our next one is another another big one. It's talking about realistic timelines. And Kyoko, you had a, a great example of how important this is. Sure, yeah. So I think, um, you know, maybe the common um, thought is that, oh, it just takes time to train the dog on the new odor. But, you know, typically that's the easiest part. Um, you know, we talked about the availability of training samples and how important that is. Um, but there might be also some project specific, um, requirements or limitations. Um, the one project that, you know, comes to mind, uh, we were asked if the dogs could detect bird eggs from a distance. Um, they're not physically accessible. And so the dogs would have to, you know, do some kind of proximity alert, um, through thick thorn bushes. Um, and in addition to that, they did not have good training samples. And then the timeline was, okay, let's deploy next month. (laughs) So, um, that wasn't just a timeline issue, but definitely, I think if there was more time, there would have been time to get samples. Uh, there would have been time to train the dogs to do project specific tasks. Um, 
And so uh, all those things, I think, to understand it takes time and um, it's not possible usually to just say, okay, let's do it next week or let's do it next month. Um, you know, with other projects I've worked on, for example, at Johnston Atoll, there were like more logistical preparations that we had to do, such as, you know, filing rabies certificates, vaccine certificates, because we're leaving the state of Hawaii and coming back with the dogs or, you know, um, wasp treatment medication um, in case the dogs get an anaphylactic reaction or something like that. So there's so many different things to prepare for. And I think um, if a project is rushed, you might compromise the safety of the dogs as well as the handlers. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, allocating enough time to prepare and discuss and plan, I think, is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are all really, really good points. Um, and I know, I mean, I know for me, part of it is even, even if someone reached out to me about doing a wind farm project in three weeks, um, while both of my dogs are already trained on baths and I would feel relatively comfortable hitting the ground running with that study design in a lot of cases, um, I'm not necessarily free in three weeks. I don't quite know where the idea comes around that I can just ship out to, um, to any location anywhere in the world at the drop of a hat. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit different if you've got a bunch of handlers, um, and you might be able to find someone who's free, um, and send them out. But, you know, if nothing else, it's always a little bit surprising to me when these timelines are so short and it's like, do you, do you think that I don't have, a have like any, <laughs> yeah, or like other projects that, right. that I've already been thinking yeah. about? <laughs> Actually, that kind of uh, brings I, to mind also that, you know, we will sometimes get, um, inquiries asking if, you know, do you have a dog trained for blah, 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 and it's a completely new application or target, and, you know, it's impossible in this conservation dog field to have one dog trained for every type of use. And so, you know, we might say, uh, no, we don't, but we can train the dog within X months. And, um, you know, often the response is, okay, never mind. Um, so there's an expectation <laughs> that, you know, it's not worth pursuing if, there isn't a pre-trained dog for that target or application. And, um, you know, I'd like to encourage the biologists and researchers to, you know, give the teams a chance, you know, a couple of months or, you know, and hopefully we can do a good job. Yeah. Or next season or, or whatever yes. it is. Um, I think let's, uh, let's jump on down to the next one, unless Jennifer has anything big to add. So Jennifer, I'm going to ask you the next question. And then if you want to circle back to the timeline, go for it. Um, so why don't we, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about kind of helping dispel the idea that the detection dog method doesn't work, you know, and where this idea may come from. Sure. Actually, I think that what I was going to share for the previous point kind of leads into this one. Um, one of the things you both have me think about, you know, in terms of rushing and timelines is, you know, we're working with, in many times, wild animals or, you know, wild species in general. And I, what I've loved about um, some of the pollinator surveys that we've done with Taylor's checker spot larva, butterfly larva, and silver spot butterfly larva is working with researchers who um, 
are aware of not only their schedules, <laughs> um, but also the very sensitive timeline and uh, of the species that we're working with, but also how in any given year, you know, weather can be different and that affects things. So we do have to be a bit flexible when we deploy the teams for all, you know, op- optimal success. Um, but that if, for example, there's only funding for five days, um, realizing that, again, like I shared earlier, it's not going to be like a magic wand and a magic trick and voila, we've done it. But um, this one specific project I'm thinking of is, it, you know, over the course of four years, three days here, four days there, um, we then had a massive breakthrough uh, this year that was just huge for the pollinator community. And realizing that sometimes if you do invest that time, like Kyoko was sharing, like, if, well, um, you know, we can't do it now, but we could possibly do it later if you give us more time. If um, there's that ability to kind of uh, wait and invest in that, um, the returns, I think, will be huge because detection dogs are just doing so much currently um, helping different projects that I don't think people realized the half of it before. Um, and we're only scratching the surface. I, I say that all the time. So dispelling the idea that the detection dog method doesn't work. We we hear this so often and I it frustrates me so much just because, you know, having done it for 15 years now, I know it works. And I, I think what happens in many of these cases, uh, again, kind of to go back to a few of the other points, is it might be a bit about study design, you know, limiting the teams to what, you know, their superpowers are versus what the power of another tool is um, and expecting the method to kind of perform the same way that other methods do. Um, statistics can get a little bit hairy. You know, it's not a neat and tidy thing where you can limit a lot of variables and just having that um, realistic kind of expectation going in that things aren't going to always looks, you know, perfect on paper, but you really are going to get a ton of different data or just, just interesting data. And again, to go back to the bumblebee question, and this related to another one, another topic we were talking about, but uh, I think it was the generalization and and the the lagomorphs. Um, one thing that some of the researchers said is we know so little about all bumblebees is that even though we're specifically interested in these two species because they're about to be listed and it's our you know prerogative or responsibility to survey for them, like if the dogs found others, that would be huge because we we know so little right now of eighty percent of their life stage, and I think that's the other thing to to keep in mind is that um, sometimes we might be answering questions that you know people didn't realize to ask, and so what is the different data that we can get from um, the the detection dog surveys? And another thing is you know I, I think there's some projects that are very very specific, so you can't you know search for multiple targets simultaneously. But there are some projects where you can pick up multiple um, samples from a variety of species to go back to Kyoko's point about having, you know, well, we don't just have like a, a single species dog because we would have to have like 100 for, you know, this for this project, this for this project. And, um, you know, there's just not enough funding out there for us to have 100 dogs each, right? <laughs> as much as we love dogs. Um, and so thinking about how we can creatively optimize conservation funding. Um, so if, for example, 
there's this really rare species that a person wants, but there's these other potentially, you know, marginal species. What can we do to highlight that? It's not that the dogs aren't finding samples out there. It's that they don't exist. And there's all these other species here. And what can they inform us about that species that we're actually interested in? And an example for this would be, um, again, the red fox work. You know, we worked a bunch in Yosemite National Park separate from another red fox project, but also looking for a red fox. And there's just not that many in the park. And so had we not had a comparative project to, you know, share, um, highlight, it could, you know, someone could interpret that like, oh, dogs can't find Sierra Nevada red fox. It's not a great method. But just across the border where their their stronghold is and highlighting like, well, look at these hundreds and hundreds of samples that the dogs found. It kind of shows like, oh my gosh, what story is actually happening on this landscape? Why aren't they in Yosemite where they used to be? And what, what other questions can we ask about um, their conservation? So that's those are some other things just to consider about um, Rather than asking why does the method not work, uh, what are some other things that we can think about that may be happening at a particular um, project? Maybe it's the wrong season. Maybe we should try a different year. Um, and so just having that flexibility uh, before writing it off. Um, and again, going back to that proof of concept, if you can work with a detection team that has done some of this work before launching into you know, something on, on your own, um, then we may not have as many papers out there that share like, oh, well, we tried this and it didn't work. It's like, well, but you did X, Y, and Z. Why would you have done that? I mean, that's crazy, right? So <laughs> it's kind of just um, being aware that not everything that's written is necessarily true across the entire um, methodology. Hey, everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. Yeah. I mean, I think you've made so many good points about how 
you know, perception of efficacy of the dogs can come down to so many different things around the study design and the experience level of the team and your goals of the study. You know, if your goal is to find every single X in an area, the dogs might not necessarily succeed at that because they might find 90%. But for a lot of other researchers, that would certainly count as a success. And I know there's some really interesting work out there by um, Karen DiMatteo kind of looking at like behavior of the non-target species as well and the target species and how they interact and how coprophagy can mess with things. Um, And we're going to do a a highlight on that paper on the podcast in a separate time. So there's just a little teaser for that. Um, So um, Kyoko, I know you also had an example of, um, you know, kind of this idea of like, Oh, the detection dog doesn't method doesn't work, but it potentially wasn't the dogs that were the problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are some targets or applications or survey environments that are just not conducive for the detection dog method. And, um, you know, one, uh, target that we had tried to, um, work on was an invasive predator snail that preys on other native snails, endangered ones. And, um, uh, working dogs for conservation had also done a project, um, with this, I think over 10 years ago, and, but we just didn't really know much about it and we didn't know what happened. And, you know, we really wanted to try it and help these native snails. So, um, were the dogs able to learn the odor? Yes. But once we, you know, went into more of a field environment, it was very, very hard for them to detect um, that snail effectively. I mean, they were literally pushing leaf litter out of the way to try to access more odor. Um, and they had to be right on top of it. And so it wasn't necessarily any, um, better or or more effective than humans looking for it. Um, and so we kind of gave that project up, but for me, it's important if, you know, if you use an experienced dog team and it still doesn't work because of, you know, these other reasons to talk about it and share why it didn't work uh, is important, I think, because otherwise people kind of just hear, oh, it didn't work and dogs don't work. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not possible to always publish a study on every project you do, but, you know, I think it's possible to talk about it either through social media or, you know, um, magazine articles, radio interviews, whatever it is, podcasts. Um, and we're not, you know, embarrassed to share things that don't work or didn't work. Um, if, you know, you know, we did our best job, um, as far as the detection dog training portion. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any one of us is saying that dogs are always going to be the perfect method for all studies or that they're always going to work. Um, and there's, there's no shame in talking about these times where dogs aren't, um, potentially the best, best use of your funding or best use of your time. Um, why don't we pivot to one of the other big concerns people may have about working with conservation dogs, which is the risks of the dogs potentially transmitting disease or chasing wildlife or otherwise kind of actually, yes, still being much more invasive than, you know, the goal of the, uh, of the method is, um, Jennifer, why don't you kick us off with that one? Sure. Ooh, lots of topics to talk about for this. (laughs) Um, I, it's been an ongoing um, conversation with nearly every project is just this fear of dogs being harmful to the environment. And I will be completely honest. I totally, completely agree. Um, Having gone out to many a place and seeing, um, you know, dogs just, you know, in a one way you can write it off and be and say, 
being dogs and, you know, chasing things, chasing one another, digging holes, eating poop, um, just, you know, things that I think in a normal pet dog world, you don't really think twice about. And But those are the things that most people are aware of. What they may not be aware of is how different a conservation detection dog is. And um, also what we ha- the standards that we have to hold ourselves up to in order to be able to survey for endangered species. Um, so when we get comments like, uh, <laughs> when we work in national parks, like, well, you wouldn't have to pay me to do that. You could just send me out there with my dog. It's like, okay, totally understand. I would think that this is a really cool job too, but are you willing to, you know, backpack all your supplies in and back, you know, pick up all that dog waste and backpack it out? Um, Because that's what we did. You know, we were trying to minimize our backcountry footprint and not leave anything in that environment that, um, you know, introduce anything to that environment that shouldn't be there and, and have those experiences for, for people who go to these national parks, you know, maintained in the way that they're hoping and and expecting. Um, And also realizing that we couldn't do our work if our dogs chased wildlife. I mean, it, it, I think it's, um, it's a sad thing to write off the entire method thinking, well, dogs just chase wildlife. So hence, you know, we'll, we'll continue doing what we're doing um, with these methods over here and maybe not trying something new that could, pull in some good data. Uh, There is an example um, with pangolin. I remember, I think it was in China, um, you know, there's often not a lot of funding again in conservation. And so these folks actually turn to poacher teams, (laughs) poachers, because they, you know, they can't afford a detection dog team. And the sad part is um, dogs can be trained to do lots of different things. but when you work with dogs who who are taught to hunt, um, part of that might be, you know, catching that animal. Um, and in one case, you know, a, a pangolin arm was was munched on. And that's just not that's not okay for us. For for them, for their data, they were actually quite excited because they learned about a species they didn't realize was still there. But when I heard that, I was like, I don't think we can talk about this in the same realm as conservation detection dogs. They're very different. Um, They're very uh, high drive and um, their focus is, is at least for us on the ball. I know with other teams, it's different, you know, whether that's food or, or praise, but to get that systematic scientific um, kind of research standard, um, that's why we, find dogs who are fetch obsessed like they wouldn't do well in any other situation in fact they were they failed as home dogs as pet dogs because they had so much energy and so much need to play fetch so but that doesn't that doesn't mean um that it's just a magic thing like oh they like to play ball now they don't chase wildlife and that's where um the whole teamwork aspect comes in with creating um, that partnership between canine and human to go out into the field and do this work. It's not just, uh, I love dogs. I love the, I love hiking. Hence I'll combine the two and voila, you know, I'm a conservation detection dog handler. Um, I would say that actually does this field 
more harm than it does um, it good. And if we want to see the field grow, I think we should, you know, we as the detection dog groups um, have to highlight how much teamwork goes into working with our dogs each and every day. And that, um, you know, it is a lifestyle. <laughs> we don't necessarily, you know, we were joking about having lives earlier. Um, we don't, there's so much that goes into us for us to develop each of these projects and and come out successful um, that you, you don't necessarily get in just you know, making a contract and hoping, you know, this will work. You know, there's so much behind the scenes and volunteer work that I know each and every single one of us do um, with our dogs to ensure that when we go out, we are being as respectful and responsible to that environment and for that species as possible. So um, I I think just realizing that, that um, if a researcher decides to go with a person and their pet, um, that that's not necessarily a detection team um, and just being aware that the results might be different and not to necessarily um, point fingers at the methodology, but more so think about, okay, what is different in these situations and what can I do differently next time? Um, So those would just be some things I would encourage uh, researchers as well as potential detection dog handlers to think about. Yeah. Kyoka, what do you have to add on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so those concerns are legitimate and, you know, if they've never worked with a conservation dog team, then um, it's totally understandable that they'd be concerned. And I think that's where going with a, you know, experienced organization or team um, can make a big difference because those people will know how to pick the right dog for that particular job, um, you know, if there's sensitive wildlife around. Um, and that those experienced people would know to ask the right questions to mitigate some of that disturbance. They um, collaborate with the biologists and researchers to learn about the wildlife and, you know, their sensitivity. Um, For example, you know, at Hanalei National Wildlife Refuge, there's several different water bird species, and, you know, to learn that the nene or the goose, um, you need to give them a wide berth of two farm units as opposed to certain other um, species, you know, which you don't have to give as wide a birth to. So learning all of those things and working with the um, biologists to learn those things and do what's best for the wildlife, um, I think is very important. Um, And a newer team may not necessarily know to do those things or ask those questions. Um, So um, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Yeah, definitely. And I know, you know, and it's not to say that all conservation dogs come out of the box perfect. I know I've talked in the uh, on the podcast in the past about a time where Niffler took off after a jackrabbit on me, um, like his first month of work. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that an experienced conservation dog handler is going to be thinking about is obviously going back to the drawing board with some training um, and situational awareness, but then also different safety tools that we can use. Um, you know, do we need to have the dog on a long line? Um, that's not always feasible in really thick brush, um, just because handling a long line, um, it's just going to be getting tangled constantly. Um, do we need to have the dog muzzled? I know in um, conservation dogs of New Zealand tend to work almost all of their dogs in muzzles. I don't know if that's a requirement down there or, or what. Um, but, you know, 
especially depending on the proximity between the dog and the target species and the sensitivity of the target species. In some cases, even if you trust your dog with your life, not to chase, not to chase, it's best to have several layers of physical backup. Um, and I know one of the, you know, aside from Jennifer, that was a really kind of alarming, but also good story about, yeah, these, um, the dogs that you know took a chunk out of a pangolin leg. I know there's also a guy who's relatively popular on social media and gets a lot of good press about him where his dogs are physically retrieving turtles. Um, and I know I've talked to a variety of biologists who immediately cringe at the concept of working with conservation dogs because they think that I'm suggesting that my dogs are going to retrieve a ferret for them. Uh, and that is absolutely not our, our plan and not our goal. And I think um, being really responsible with media around something like that um, is, is important and kind of, you know, podcasts like this constantly bringing up like, no, this is, this is meant to be non-invasive and here's as professionals, all of the things that we're doing to help maintain it as a non-invasive technique. And I'm glad that both of us or all three of us have brought up dog selection as part of this. I know, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for dogs with really high ball drive to also coincide with dogs with high play drive or chase drive. Um, I know all of us have worked with herding breeds to some degree, and most herding breeds are highly sensitive to visual fast moving stimuli on the horizon. And, um, you know, then that again is where it, it's our job as trainers and, handlers um, to help the dogs understand what their job is and that it is it is absolutely not appropriate to be chasing wildlife um, no matter what your herding dog instincts are telling you um, or other other dog instincts um, we are going to wrap it up there we had a couple more points to bring up on things to think about before considering hiring a dog team but we're we're not going to let this go too much longer is there anything more we want to say about um, kind of vaccination status um, I know you know, obviously for our dog safety, we're always thinking about having them fully vaccinated, but that actually can mean that they um, they are still a risk to unvaccinated wildlife. So what are some of the things that we're thinking about as far as vaccination status and other preventative um, kind of healthcare things, both for our dogs and for the, the species in the area? Uh, Kyoko, I'll let you start. Uh, shoot. Well, this is something that um, I hadn't really thought about in detailed before, but I mean, we do ensure that, you know, we work closely with our veterinarians prior to deployment and that they stay up to date on their, you know, vaccines and titers. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure um, what else to say about that, but perhaps Jennifer has some good points. Oh, um, I think uh, for us, and you you kind of actually brought this up, Kyoko, that sometimes for some projects, certain vaccinations are required. Um, so, for example, once again, when we worked in the national park, we actually had to sh uh, provide an updated health certificate to, you know, prove that our dogs had been seen by a vet um, within the past month prior to even entering the park, um, and, and to do the work. And then when we've worked, um, internationally as well, not only do the handlers have to go through, um, making sure they have a bunch of, uh, shots, um, but we have to make sure that we're not putting our dogs in any sort of situations that, um, invites dangerous situations. And for example, in like Africa, um, you know, the water can be really dangerous. Um, there's certain organisms that live in them. So we can't have the dogs, you know, drink out of, out of, um, 
untreated water sources. And this can be a shock to some researchers who think, oh, a dog's a dog and they eat poop and they drink from puddles and they're just gross. So they'll be fine. It's actually, no, they're, they're our colleague, they're our coworker, um, they're our equal. Um, and so advocating for them to ensure that, you know, water is either boiled or there's a treatment um, system so that we make sure the dogs are receiving as clean um, food and water as we are. Um, and also realizing that when we were talking about preventative medicine, for example, tick disease is is a big concern of ours. And um, there are ways to treat in the United States. And sometimes when we go to areas that are really, really heavy um, with ticks and that just normal preventative medicine um, doesn't help, we might double up on this. But um, also sharing with researchers that um, the dogs can get sick. So even though you're hiring a professional team, and as the handler, it's my responsibility that each and every day, sometimes three times a day, I look my dog over um, for ticks and other abrasions um, and just make sure that they're healthy, that sometimes we might have to stop work um, because they can't do it or they they got something somewhere um, we had a dog <laughs> breathe in tiny leeches in Vietnam, um, which we didn't know at the time until we were probably three to four days before flying out. Uh-huh. And she had leeches, giant leeches now coming out of her nose. <laughs> and so we, to be able to fly, I mean, cause we may not have been able to oh fly. We had to figure out how to literally birth those leeches from her nose to ensure that she passed her health check so that we could get her home. And so these are some things that people may not realize that as a uh, detection dog handlers, we're, we're always considering the dog and their health. Um, and one final point on that I'd like to bring up is um, at least for the, for a lot of the work that we do in rattlesnake country, we vaccinate our dogs for uh, rattlesnake, which doesn't mean um, that they will survive. Um, it just means that we, it buys us extra time. And so there's a lot of health concerns that go into operating a detection dog program or just being a detection dog team that I don't think um, either researchers or other persons interested getting into this field realize. And it's a cost that, uh, you know, is, should definitely be considered and also something that, you know, a person should consider if they have time to be able to spend that um, with their dog to make sure that, you know, they're always tip top shape before we go out. Yeah, yeah, there's so many important points to think through as far as safety. And I think we're going to circle back to some of the field hazards um, at the top of our next episode. And we've got, uh, this might end up having to be a three-parter. We'll see. We're going to be talking about kind of cultural um, sensitivities with conservation dogs, getting those samples appropriately analyzed, when dogs might not be the right choice, funding, all sorts of stuff. Um, so be sure to tune into that um, when we are back online for that. Thank you both so much for coming on. Um, Kyoko and then Jennifer, can you tell our listeners where to find you? And we'll be sure to have those notes in the sh- those links in the show notes. Sure. Uh, our website for Conservation Dogs of Hawaii is www.conservationdogshawaii.org. And we're on Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Dogs Hawaii. Yeah. And we are also... Um, on Facebook and Instagram at Rogue Detection Teams. Our website is roguedogs.org. And we have a YouTube site. Um, We're a little bit on LinkedIn, not so much. And we're on Twitter. So you can find us just searching for Rogue Detection Teams. And um, 
we're just here to answer questions and um, we love following uh, both Kayla and Kyoko. So it's kind of a small community and it's, it's really great to get to have these conversations. Yeah, well, I appreciate both of you taking time out of your day and uh, busy schedules to, to talk to us and share your knowledge with, with our listeners. Um, thanks again for coming Thank on. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're feeling inspired and learned a lot. So go ahead and get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Don't forget to check us out at Patreon at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. And we will be back for a part two on selecting the right dog team and preparing to work with a dog team next week. As always, you can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. <laughs>